Hello, and welcome to Ground Control Parenting, a blog, and now a podcast created for parents raising black and brown children. I'm the creator and your host, Carol Sutton-Lewis. In this podcast series, I talk with some really interesting people about the job and the joy of parenting. Today, I am so happy to have the fabulous Harriet Cole join me for today's conversation. Harriet is a true Renaissance woman, and I'll only list a few of her many talents. She's an author, a nationally syndicated advice columnist, a motivational speaker, and a multimedia producer. She was an editor at Essence Magazine. She's launched several magazines, including Savoy and Uptown. She led the redesign of Ebony Magazine, and she was its editor-in-chief. She's provided media training and presentation training for a host of clients, including celebrities and corporate leaders. She hosts a weekly radio show, Dream Leapers, and she's been hosting that since 2016. And she now also hosts a weekly podcast, Dream Leapers Inspiration, where she and her guests explore ways to inspire listeners to live their best lives. As she explains on her website, her mission is to help people identify, stand in, and articulate their greatness. I love that. Harriet is a proud graduate of Howard University. She and her husband, George Shinsey, have a daughter, Carrie, who'll be 20 this year. Welcome to Ground Control Parenting, Harriet. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much, Carol. So excited to have you here. Your mission of helping people find confidence and your work on presentation training really resonates with me because here on Ground Control Parenting, we're all about raising confident, thriving children, and I'm sure we'll be able to learn valuable lessons from the work you do and from your own parenting philosophies. So let's get started. All right. So I always like to start by asking my guests how they were parented. And in this instance, I know that that really impacts what you do and, and probably also the way you parent. So tell me a little bit about how you grew up, where you grew up, and how your, what your parents' expectations were. <laughs> I'm from Baltimore, the middle of three girls. My father was the youngest of five children, a single-parent household. He became a judge, a lawyer, and then a judge. He was the first black state senator in Maryland, and later the first black judge on the Maryland Court of Appeals. Mm. That's important for a lot of reasons, but we, <laughs> we grew up in a strict household where excellence was the only option. My mother, Doris Cole, oh, my father's name is Harry Cole. I'm named for him. Ah, My mother's Doris Cole. She's Doris Freeland Cole. She grew up the youngest of two children, and she became a teacher. They were the first generation professionals and college educated, which is very common in the black community. They will say they grew up poor but didn't know it. <laughs> you know, um, my grandmother, Carrie, for whom my daughter is named, was a domestic worker who worked until she was 93. When we made her stop working, she lived to be 101. Wow. And she was independence and grace. And the way we grew up, literally, excellence being the only option, that's what my father said, that's how they lived. We understood that you had to strive to be your absolute best at all times. There wasn't like downtime for misbehaving. <laughs> so the table was set no matter what we ate. If, we, if you had a hot dog, there was still a knife, fork and spoon, and a napkin and they had to be washed even if you didn't use them. Ah. <laughs> and I remember thinking, why? Why? We could not have the ketchup bottles and mustard and whatever condiments could not be in their advertising containers on the table because my father said there would be no advertisements during a meal. 
Ah. So it had to be put into a neutral, like whatever the container was that would go on a table, glass or some china, whatever it might be, Mm -hmm. because there was no advertising at the table. I'm going to stop you right there. First of all, I didn't know this. We share similar backgrounds. My mother was a teacher, and my father was a judge. He was a lawyer and then a judge. Now, I'm really curious about the, and I I want to talk to you more about this, but I'm really curious about the expectations of, not only of excellence, but of manners and etiquette and presentation, because like your father, certainly, and, and my mother was first generation college, and she too was very focused on manners and table settings. I know that that was aspirational for her, that she didn't grow up with that. I mean, she grew up in a family where they set the table, but she took it to another level. And I I know that that was part of her aspiration. She, she wanted to go to college. She wanted to have a proper, she wanted to know how to do things properly. So you mentioned your father was one of five in a single parent home. Do you think he was raised that way? Or do you think similarly he sort of aspired to this life that included this presentation? I think he was raised that way. And I know my mother was, even though they didn't grow up like that. So in my mother's case, I'll start with her. Because my my grandmother was a domestic worker, she worked for wealthy, very wealthy people in Baltimore, primarily Jewish families. Baltimore has a large Jewish population. Among the people who she took care of were the Cone sisters who have a wing in the Maryland Museum of Art. Ah. And they traveled all over the world and brought, like they were friends with Picasso. My grandmother had a Picasso because she met him. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) My grandmother was exposed to everything Mm -hmm. and she brought, and and they loved her. So they gave her everything. Mm -hmm. So they had fine china. Mm. And actually, one of the practices that I learned that was from not just my grandmother, but her friends and family, they understood the value of sterling silver Mm. as flatware. Mm -hmm. And so they, even though they had very little money, they would buy for wedding presents and anniversary presents one sterling silver spoon, one fork, one knife. So over the course of a lifetime, they and their loved ones would have a full service of 12 because they understood they cared about that. Mm-hmm. So so my grandmother kind of showed her children, my uncle and my mother, how to live a very fine life with very little money. Mm-hmm. My father's mother, I don't know how she knew it because I, she she was very stern. I didn't talk to her as much and she didn't live as long. But their house was immaculate. They had linen napkins and I don't know if it was silver but the table was set and you had to eat a particular way <laughs> so I don't I don't know why they knew it I know why my grandmother did and the way we grew up my sisters and I because so this is another part about Baltimore which which I think is important to know Baltimore just south of the Mason-Dixon line had a thriving black middle class early so there there was a black elite so to speak, early. Many social clubs, of course, sororities and fraternities, but others. And my parents' generation was the first generation to populate that group. So they grew up, and as did we as their kids, going to all of the black tie events. My mother had a black tie closet. Literally. <laughs> and a walk-in closet that was black tie. One side was her black tie. The other side was all the custom suits that my father had made from the time he became an attorney until he retired. In order. 
<laughs> and so we lived like this black tie life that was the black community. Mm-hmm. The doctors, the lawyers, the educators, the business owners, the neighborhood we grew up in became that because once my parents and the, the doctor next door moved in, there was white flight. And so it was all black professionals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the the other pieces. Because my father was such a prominent member of society, we were the coal girls. And there was an expectation, you speak about expectations, there was an expectation that we walked, talked, and lived a particular way. And there wasn't even a thought that you wouldn't live up to the expectation of honoring your family by being proper, kind, down-to-earth, girls and then young women. That was it. That was what was expected. And we had to live like that. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So let me ask you about your father's mantra, which was excellence was the only option. Now, in today's world, I mean, that is certainly admirable. Excellence is something that you, you really want to shoot for. As parents, we want our children to strive for excellence. But It being the only option. It was hard. It was so hard. What exactly did that mean, though? I mean, did it mean sort of just do your best and he could see that you were doing your best so there was no issue? Or did it mean you had to come home with great grades or he was upset? Well, I will give you an example, Carol. (laughs) I think I was in about the seventh or eighth grade. And background, my father was a class valedictorian always. He graduated from Morgan. Wasn't even at the graduation because he had enlisted in the army for World War II, but he was the valedictorian. So, you know, okay, I'm supposed to be the valedictorian. I was the one who drank that Kool-Aid the most. Well, my younger sister probably too. But anyway, I came home one day with a 98 on a test. I was so proud. It was a really difficult class. I don't know what it was. And presented it to my father. And very sternly, he looked at me and said, where are the other two points? I was devastated. I want to tell you I was mad for about 20 years. (laughs) I've never forgotten. (laughs) Stephanie, my younger sister, said it was a 95 for her. He did the same. I was so mad at him. But in processing, you know, anger at your parents and all the the years that you go through and then, then you get to the other side, I realized his point was, if you got to 98, why would you leave anything on the table? If you can get to 98, you can get to 100. So his thing was strive for the best. Mm-hmm. I The way he delivered it was as a judge does. It was not nice mm-hmm. at all. And I promised that I wouldn't do that to my daughter. Now, if you ask her today, I don't know if I have been successful. I didn't say I, I was nicer than I think he was, but she got me. I wasn't valedictorian, but I was close. I was as close as I could get. I was a straight-A student. She is, too, for the most part. Even though I have tried to be softer with the beliefs, they're ingrained in me, and therefore they're ingrained in her. (laughs) So I know a little bit about your sisters, and they both have very impressive careers. And so that worked. I mean, his approach worked. I'll have to say that that sort of (laughs) in, in... there are certain families, mine included, where it doesn't always work when you have the, I mean, my father was similarly stern and had great expectations. And it worked for some of us. It didn't work for all of us. Mm-hmm. But but it's good. I mean, it, it is a good and affirming thing if three different sisters, three different personalities, everybody can come away with a lesson uh, relatively unscathed. <laughs> 
it's, you know, so my older sister has worked, first she was a television news anchor, and then she moved to LA with her husband and changed her career. She was at Disney for many years working in global HR, and now she runs HR for an international toy company. My younger sister is the highest ranking black female executive in all of Lockheed Martin. She runs a $17 billion business. So I call myself, you know, the, like the, the slacker. <laughs> <laughs> I am, and I sometimes feel like that. You're like, wow, look at my sisters. And then I realized we're, we, we're all overachievers. <laughs> Absolutely. So I think part of the secret formula, though, must come from your mother, yes. who uh, was a kindergarten teacher. And, and there's a quote somewhere that I've seen that says that she devoted her life to her children. No question. And tell me, how did that manifest itself? I mean, how she, she worked, she was a teacher. How did you feel her devotion? Well, she worked until my younger sister was born. So for most of our lives, she didn't work. And I've learned later, this was a decision that she and my father made, that she would stay home and take care of the children. There were times when we were mad because we thought that he was too strict and controlling and, you know, all the things that, that children think. But I, I mean, my mother's 93 years old now, and she still has his retirement for life. <laughs> I mean, he's still taking care of her. He's been gone for 20-something years. It's amazing. But so she was home after 1965 when my sister Stephanie was born, and she took us to school. She was involved in the PTA. And my mother is beauty, light, love. I mean, that's she is that. When my mother would come to visit me at Howard, <laughs> this is a true story, that was when the boys came. They would follow my mother around. I was like, I have <laughs> male friends when my mother's here because she literally is physically beautiful, but she emanates love. And that's what she taught us, that you beauty is as beauty does. That was one of her sayings. She she believes in physical beauty and, and you know is a girly girl in some ways, but she's incredibly strong. And something she did, because my father wanted all of his daughters to stay at home, live at home when we went to college so that he could take care of us and protect us, I guess. Please. <laughs> my first year, I went to a local school where my older sister had gone, Towson. I hated it. I also hated being under her. And my mother and I did the great escape. I got to Howard because I was a straight-A student. I could get in. She took me there, got me in, got me an apartment because it was too late to be in the dorm. And then my father said, well, I'm not paying for that. Because she shouldn't be leaving. My mother came out of retirement. She hadn't worked for 15 years. And she started working for Random House selling books so that she would be able to pay for my college education. Wow. And how? what kind of power is that? Yeah, yeah, no. That does so a lot about something. mom. Yeah, yeah, no. Mom may have been okay sort of following, towing the line until she didn't want to. <laughs> well, until it was necessary. Right. I love this life. I live this life. She was... You know, the black society lady, so-called, but she was fierce. She is fierce. And her children came first. And for me, I didn't know, I, don't, I wasn't even sure I wanted to have children because I knew I didn't have the personality to stay at home. I didn't think I could do for my child what my mother had done for me and my sisters. And so I had my daughter late at 42 is when I had my daughter. Mm -hmm. I've been married for 10 years. And 
when finally it was like, okay, maybe this can be a good thing, I took her everywhere. I said, if I'm not going to stop working, I am going to show her what is possible for a woman. I was pregnant and I was taping a 13-episode TV series. I never told them I was pregnant. Thank God I carried small. <laughs> I was on a book tour with her her in one arm, signing books in the other. She went everywhere with me until she was in school and, and continued. So she could see, if, it, well, if I wasn't going to be at home, she could see a woman can do anything. Mm-hmm. And I think she sees that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I, that I'm so glad you said that. And I want to just back up. When I heard myself ask about your mom devoting her life to her children, and then my next line was, she didn't, I mean, she was working. That is not to suggest that you, when you're working, you're not devoting your of life course. to your children. <laughs> so I just want to be clear on that because people, as you, you devoted your life to your daughter, right. as you took her around and, and showed her I the world. I had that thought. So what you said is the thought that many people have. I had it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I thought I would be a terrible mother because I couldn't do that thing that we think of. So I'm glad you said it because it, a lot of people have that in their head. Yeah, yeah. no, I did. And, and God knows I struggled for 20 some odd years that I wanted to work, couldn't figure out what I was doing, but also really enjoyed spending time with my kids and focusing on their development. It was a real struggle not wanting to be a stay-at-home mom. In fact, I would, that would You'd get the glare of life from me right? if you called me that. <laughs> but I couldn't figure out what kind of job that I could do as well as I knew I could do it while I've got three kids that I'm sort of... Yeah. Yeah, it's always... I, I love talking to people about how everyone enters into this conversation with themselves and their spouse or their partner and their, you know, and how we all get to the other side. It's so interesting. And, and so challenging. I remember when I was at Ebony, I worked there for three years and I commuted for three years. My daughter, I, I started at Ebony 2006, right before Obama was running for president. And my daughter was young. She was born in 2003. So we kept, so I added a half a day extra onto the nanny's schedule so that I could come and go and my husband wouldn't have to do everything. I was gone three or four days a week for three years, either in Chicago or LA or wherever. And one day, my daughter's about four. I came home and she says, mommy, it's not fair. And she had come to Chicago. So she met Linda Johnson Rice and she says, you need to tell Mrs. Rice that it's not fair and you have to come home. And I was like, oh my God, I was so devastated. However old she was, because shortly after that, every they wanted me to move to Chicago. We weren't moving to Chicago. So it naturally ended. But she said, like, I mean, a couple of weeks later, I came home and she says, oh my God, she's like, I have that much power. <laughs> she she said, I didn't mean right now. <laughs> but it was amazing, Carol, because you do have to make decisions sometimes that are dramatic pivots mm-hmm. when you have children. And she needed me. And she articulated it clearly, even though she was really young. Mm-hmm. So maybe she was six, whatever. But it was it was a moment when I realized I do need the pivot. And she had to tell me. And thank goodness, the, the universe listened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a tribute to your parenting up until that point that she knew how to tell you and that she could tell you. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just have to also say it's so interesting with partnerships where the mom just really has to make sure everything is taken care of, as, as, regardless of how supportive your spouse or partner may be. <laughs> 
<laughs> Y'all can't see us, but we're shaking our heads. <laughs> you know, that's and, and and who knows what it would have been like if I had said, you figure it out. But you can't. As a mom, you can't. You know, those early years, I, I don't know any other way. It was my responsibility to make sure that it was handled enough so that he could do what he wanted to do, but he didn't feel it was a burden. And I mean, he was great. Yeah. Yeah. But I set it up. Right, right. Well, it reminds me of a, of one of my favorite vignettes on this topic. Um, my youngest was an infant, and it's so young that I think it was the first time that my husband was taking the other older two children on a weekend trip. It was the first time I would only have one to look after, mm-hmm. but a little baby. And they took the Amtrak train to Washington, D.C. Now, it's, I guess it's still the case that in, in the train station, that you show your ticket, and then you go down an escalator to yes. the train. So I left the baby at home with the sitter, and I'm you know, seeing the children off, and I'm feeling like, oh, you know, they're all going. This is great. So they all have their little overnight bags. And my husband shows the conductor his ticket and gets on the escalator. And the two children look at me like they're, I don't know, they're like, what are they, four and, and six? And they've never gotten on an escalator by themselves with luggage. The ticket takers look at me like, what? What is supposed to happen here? It's like, he said, you can take them down. Look at my husband like, I know you love your children. You have left them at the top of the escalator. <laughs> His perspective was, they'll figure it out. I was like, yes, or they will go headfirst down the escalator. It's just a different perspective. <laughs> so different. And I mean, you know, there's so many things that I remember that occurred like, I'm so glad I was there. Would the child still be alive? <laughs> you know, what happens in your brain? There is a reason that mothers exist. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I keep hoping for my daughter, who is she and her friends, late 20s, early 30s. I'm hoping that there's some enlightenment. I'm hoping that there's a new generation of more shared responsibility, more really shared responsibility. I don't know. I mean, I just talked to a friend whose son. And his wife just had a child, and he, this is the second child, he took paternity leave. Mm -hmm. I haven't heard that that often. I know it exists now, but here's a New York family, and the husband took paternity leave for four months. Wow. And I said, this is great. And is he really actively involved? And he absolutely is. So I think it's happening sometimes. Good, good, good. I'm I'm glad to hear it. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to the show. So I love that we veered off in this other yeah. direction. <laughs> but now I want to pull it back and ask you, that, as I, I mentioned this great quote that you, in your media training business, where you help people identify, stand in, and articulate their greatness. Now, clearly, the upbringing you've had, you know, with the striving for excellence, you have been taught the importance of greatness and the importance of standing in it. So give me a sense first, how do you do this with adults? Like, how do you, you when people come to you and say, I want to stand in my greatness, what, what's the prescription? I do a lot of inner work with people. So I teach them how to meditate and how to access that inner voice. Because we all have greatness within, but often we don't realize it. Uh, I am a firm believer in dreams. I've worked with people who do not believe in it. Oh, I don't dream. I don't have time for that. Like, okay, well, tell me the things you're thinking about and tell me what makes you excited. And it's really finding, helping them find that pulse point inside that gives them energy. 
And then how do you talk about it? How do you describe it? How do you describe yourself so that the story lights up within you and in others? It's really finding your story. And a lot of people have these disparate parts, but they don't even think they have a story. And interestingly, even with, because as you shared, I've worked with lots of entertainers and celebrities. When you have a project and you've poured everything into the project, you, you believe that that thing you created is great, but being able to talk about that thing is completely different. And very often you will notice that the most creative people can do their creativity, but when they start to talk about it, they shrink, they get shy, they don't make eye contact. Suddenly the story is gone because they haven't connected their ownership of it, their birthing of whatever it is to themselves. It, it's, it's this separate thing. And so my role is to help them get back to kind of a gut connection to who they are and what they've created and how they want to be in the world. And it, it's a fascinating experience because some of the greatest creative people have a hard time articulating it until they can, they access it on the inside and learn how to say it. You know, how do I articulate to you who I am, what I believe, what I think is important, what's unique about me, what my creativity means and why you should care about it? That's what I teach people. Wow. That, that sounds amazing. So, so now I have to, to move this into the parenting realm because all that you just said would be all that we would wish that our children would know how to do. I mean, and, and as parents, we would love to be able to give them the tools to do this. So I'm, I've got to ask you the shoemaker's children's question. It's <laughs> <laughs> like your ability to do this for celebrities, for, for, for people who are not related to you. It's a gift and a talent. How does it work with your daughter? <laughs> are you, did you, did you sort of think about parenting her in the way that this would be something she would naturally evolve into? Yes. Mm -hmm. So one incredible tool is meditation. And she's grown up in a family and a community of meditators. So she understands how to, from birth, how to access that space. And I think that's helped immeasurably. I always talk to her like a person rather than a baby. And I explain things to her as, as my mother says, I'll share things with you on a need-to-know basis. And I wondered why I would learn things even now. Well, you didn't need to know before. Okay, so I do the same thing. If you need to know something, the truth about a scenario, about me, about life, whatever, I'll share it with you at a moment with perspective to help you understand. And teaching values, I think, is so important from the beginning. I think one mistake parents make is to think, oh, well, I'll teach my child that when my child can talk. Or, you know, well, when she's older, I'll teach her. From day one, whatever I believe, we believe, we have said out loud and demonstrated. And I think it makes a difference. And I'll give you an example of something that occurred recently that she'll probably be mortified that I share this, but it's a really good example. So she's a freshman in college. And to protect, I won't say the full detail, but something occurred with her roommate. And her roommate was completely freaked out and needed help. 
And it was a very confidential situation. She called Carrie, can you please help me? And they're not really friends, they're roommates. And Carrie said, okay, I'll help you. And then Carrie didn't know what to do because it was something she didn't understand. So she called me, mommy, this is happening. I'm not quite sure what to do, but she needs my help. Can you walk with me to on the phone to the store to help handle this thing? So I talked with her through a scenario that required her to be grown up. Her friend was losing it. And she kept her calm, understood that I could support her. And in the end, also, I reminded her, now, this is confidential, so you are not to talk to your friends about it after. She says, of course not, Mommy. The roommate's friends called her, because everybody's dissed somewhere else, to thank her for caring for their friend who was completely losing it and didn't know what to do. For me... That's the best example ever. First of all, she knew I could still help her and not judge. She understood she didn't have all the tools as a 19-year-old to manage a tough situation. But she knew she had enough inner strength to be okay, and she knew I had her back. And she kept it confidential. I can't ask for anything else. Total win. I mean, all across the board. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I've talked about this with other guests. The the value, teaching your children values mm-hmm. is, it's so important. And it is, you know, there's an expression, character is what we do when no one's looking. And from day one, you're demonstrating to your children how to be, how to act. And as parents, it's really important to remember that, to understand that, and to impart our value system to them as early as we possibly can. Absolutely. That is a, the example you just gave is a beautiful one of how it shows up when it needs to. And, and you are, you are it, it's so funny how our children impress us so. I mean, they shouldn't because we've actually poured a bunch of this stuff into them, but it's very impressive to see when you, when you see things stick and you see how they work. The fact that she felt comfortable calling you and you properly didn't castigate her. I mean, she was trying to do right. the right thing. There's so many good lessons of that story. And so I would heartily agree that when the principal takeaways is talk to your children a lot. <laughs> a lot. There has to be a point at which they know that your bond is above whatever the situation is and it, it has to be able, they have to and be able to rely on you. you're not going to judge them. So like I could talk to my mother. I absolutely could not talk to my father. My father was a judge and he judged us all the time. <laughs> I wouldn't tell him anything. And <laughs> Same here. You know, Definitely. So Mom she first. She knows she can talk to me. My husband is not so much like my father, but he's still a man and she doesn't talk to him about as many things. But, you know, another thing, Carol, is over time, and to this point of talking to them a lot, there are refinements to lessons. So I'll give you one other example. Um, I think it was last summer, maybe the summer before, before college. And we were in the Hamptons where we often go in the summer, and there was a girl who was by herself too. So these two teenagers and parents put them together. And my daughter was like, mm, something. She looked at her Instagram and didn't like it. And said, I don't know, mommy, but I'll go because you are you all are asking me to. They got into a scenario because of this other girl that could have been dangerous. She decided once they got far enough away from families that she was going to try to talk to men at stop signs in cars, literally. And so the lesson had been, my daughter learned, you never leave a friend. And so she's like, what am I? She told me later, what am I going to do? Because this girl was going to get in the car with this man. And she's like, I'm not getting in the car. 
So what she said is, she said to her, don't do that. This is dangerous. I'm not getting in with you. You shouldn't get in either. Somehow, Carrie's resolve got that girl to not get into the car. She called me. I came and picked them up. She didn't hang out with her anymore. She was kind to her, but firm. But what happened in the retelling of this, she said, you taught me never to leave anybody behind. But you also taught me don't get into the car (laughs) with strangers. And obviously this was unsafe. She said, so in the moment, I had to make a decision. I said, well, that's the point. Mm-hmm. You, I don't want you to blindly follow my rules. They are guidelines for life. But in the moment, you have to use your brain. And so there's another example of parenting in action and, and the child stepping into her own power, into her own greatness, and making a choice that was safe for her and the other person. Mm, yeah, another a great example. It reminds me of what I always say about teaching my children values. They grew up in New York City. New York City, yeah. I grew up in New York City. So it, it, there's a lot here. So much. I mean, I advocate for raising your child in a city where a lot of things happen because you expose them. You have great opportunities to teach them a lot about things That's to do, right. things not to yeah. do. So what I would say to all of them and the way that I, I interacted with them when they were young is I wanted each of them, this, this actually became more in high school, they would hear this, I wanted all of them to be able to have a sentence running in their head when they were away from me, if they were out with their friends. My mother would kill me if... <laughs> And whatever they were about to do that they knew was kind of sketchy, I wanted I wanted them to be able to I love that. <laughs> put that in that sentence and see if it worked. And I would say to them, I, I want you to do that, not because 100% of the time I think you're going to not do that thing. I mean, because you're going to do, you're going to make, life is filled with making decisions and bearing the consequences of them. But I just want you to before you do that thing, just understand where I would be on this and, and the measure of risk you are taking. I mean, I want you to be safe. I also want you to have your own life. But just know, if you're doing something... <laughs> I like that. If you think your mother would kill you, think a whole lot before <laughs> you do it, and then be really careful. <laughs> so, I, so fortunately, they all managed to get through <laughs> without... Nobody ever has told me that they have used that, but they've also been in, 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 I've heard about situations where I'm sure that was going through their head <laughs> at the time. And fortunately, it all worked out. But that's, that's sort of the value. It's so important. I love that. Yeah. I, I wanted them to know that there were some things I wanted to be in their head for some things. But, but to your point, they've got to make the ultimate decision. They do. But look, my, like I said, my father's been gone, I think it's about 22 years. He's in my head every day. I hear him. Yeah. I hear the lessons. I, I mean, they're they're still there. And that's what we need to know. Those lessons are still there. And, you know, another thing my husband has said, don't put chemicals in your body. You know, because we are in a drug culture now. And he's like, don't put anything that's a chemical in your body. And so my daughter, you know, she's in college. People are doing all kinds of things. And she said, I hear daddy saying that. And one of her, not necessarily friend, but a person in her friend group decided to use something that's a chemical, kind of lost her mind. And so the first thing Carrie did was to go rescue her. No judgment, but she said, you can't put me in this situation. And then she said, after the second time, she said, I'm not coming again, which means if you are in a space of danger and you're doing something that you shouldn't be doing, my next way of helping you is to call the police. 
because you need help. I was so proud of her. Like, first of all, I'm so glad you didn't try that because it would be really bad for you. And you know enough to know that because look, I tried all kinds of things when I was a kid. She didn't. I'm like, good. And she doesn't want to be around it. So she made it. To me, that's such a sign of strength and inner strength. And I, her point of, I don't want you to be in danger. So if you call me the third time, my call is to the police, not for you to be penalized, but for you to be saved from whatever other outer influence there might be. That's a kind of grown-up decision. That's really responsible. I, I have to ask you, I, girl, you know, we can just continue. <laughs> but <laughs> I have one more topic that I want to switch to sure. quickly. But it reminded me when you said your father, you know, was still in your head. He, he was uh, gave you a lot of advice. And that is a wonderful segue to your work as an advice columnist. Yeah. I mean, I marvel at this. You you are the... the um, I don't want to call it the Dear Abby, but you are the person that people write, the nationally syndicated column, and people write to you their problems. So I want to know how two things. First of all, just how you approach helping people with their problems. And secondly, is this eye role inducing for your daughter that you are the advisor <laughs> to the world? Or does she think, agree that you are the best advisor in the world and brings all her friends to you to ask for your advice? <laughs> uh, she does not bring her friends to me to ask for advice. Absolutely not. I think she probably doesn't think about it that much, you know, because I do a lot of things. That's one of the things that I do. I've been writing this column, Sense and Sensitivity, for as long as she's been alive, I think. It's for many, many years. Um, how do I approach it? It's called Sense and Sensitivity. And so the idea is that it's practical and sensitive. Also, I don't profess to know everything, so I do research when the questions require research or you know, a, a, a lifeline in one way or another. People want to be validated. People want to understand how to navigate something that's really uncomfortable. And what I've discovered, and I learned this first when I was traveling around with my first book, Jumping the Broom, and people were asking me all these questions beyond weddings because they wanted help from somebody they trusted. And they, for whatever reason, where they grew up, whatever their environment was, they didn't know. And I realized that people wanted a lifeline that they trusted. And the irony of it, Carol, is that I was so mad about all these rules when I was growing up, and I earned a living teaching them. I mean, I was like, enough with the rules, and here I am teaching the rules. <laughs> and teaching just how to live and navigate your life with grace and integrity, which is what my parents, those were the values. So approach is to infuse grace and integrity into everything. Sometimes it's cold water in the face. Hello, <laughs> are you hearing yourself? This does not make sense. If it doesn't make sense, it's not going to make sense later. And how can you think about something differently in order to have a, the potential for a different result? And then a lot of questions these days are kind of cultural, awkward cultural intersections because we are from everywhere. You know, our world is not as uniform as it used to be, that there are a lot of people who, in this l moment of diversity, equity, and inclusion awareness, a lot of people are making efforts and they don't know what to do. How can I look at you and understand you when you're so different from me, when you eat differently, you dress differently, you think differently? 
And how can I react to you in a way that is respectful when I grew up in this way? I get a lot of questions like that, which are, I like those because they force me to think and they force others to agree to push past whatever their comfort zone is. Well, people don't really like to do that. And in tough times, they often don't do it. So when the economy shrinks, when when times are hard for people, they often dig in their heels in whatever way they believe, and then we have a lot of friction. And so my recommendation to people when they start feeling contracted is to stop, take a breath, and look again. How can you soften your gaze and consider the other person's perspective? Because if you don't, it's just going to be a fight. Yeah, I mean, such, I, every all roads lead to parenting for me. Oh, yeah. Only <laughs> in this conversation, they do. And so, I mean, what you just said, the really valuable, valuable perspective. So that that's, that is great to hear. So Harriet, I, I literally, I have so many more <laughs> questions for you, but I'm going to stop our conversation now. We'll have to have another one and make you play the GCP lightning round. Okay, okay, let's do it. Four questions, and here they go. First, your favorite Poem or saying? A favorite. doesn't have to be one. I'll take from my father. His favorite poem is, it's from a man named Edgar A. Guest. I'd rather see see a poem than read one any day. I think that's how it says. And it's basically, and he would recite the poem, but it's how do you live, not what do you say. I'd rather see a poem than read one any day. And that's a new one. <laughs> that's great. Name two favorite children's books, and they can be books that you grew up with or books that you, your daughter loved that you would read to her or with her. <laughs> two favorite children's books. That's a tough one. That was tough for me, uh, nursery rhymes and children's books, because <laughs> I had my daughter at 42. <laughs> I'm going to say, I don't, I, I, you know, uh, Goodnight Moon. My daughter loved Goodnight Moon. Mm-hmm. So that was a good one. And I, I, you know, what was fun is the cat in the hat. Mm-hmm. But honestly, I don't think I paid that much attention to the books. <laughs> good question. I'm not usually stumped. That's a good one. Okay. Two questions about momhood. First, a mom moment that you'd love to do over. And by that, I mean, it wasn't, I do not mean that it was so great you want to do it again. I mean, one that you would love to do over in a different way. And nothing too deep. No, so this is a fun one. Yeah. I think Carrie was three or four. She was really young. And I would host huge parties for her. So I love that part. This party was at a gym. But I'm a fashion girl. I always dressed her in the most fabulous fashion. And I put her in <laughs> what my niece called like a lady who goes to church outfit. It was a fabulous, like Chanel-looking ensemble at a gym. And my niece is like, seriously, Aunt Harry, what is she going to do in this? So she had it on. All the other kids have one jeans and sweats and, you know, their they're little, uh, you know, sneaker socks. And she has on lovely tights and a tweed skirt and jacket. And... Poor, poor baby, couldn't say anything because I dressed her and it was ridiculous. <laughs> I would do over her outfit. <laughs> 
That's a good one. <laughs> and so finally, a moment when you knew you nailed it as a mom. You've described a few already. I've described a few. I love the fact that this is the first year of college for my daughter, so it's really new. She wants to spend time with me. And and she wants to be independent. So here's an example. I took her to Paris for her graduation present. And we planned it for a few years. We, she studied French for a long time. We we're doing all the things we we're doing. But the day before we left, she learned that like 10 of her friends were going to be in Paris at the same time. So now this mother-daughter trip was being hijacked. And what ended up happening is the days were ours. We would come home after dinner at around 10, and she would change her clothes <laughs> and get ready to go out in Paris with her friends, returning at 3 and 3.30 in the morning. And I, of course, was awake. She stayed in touch with me. This was our agreement. Let me know when you get there. Let me know when you're heading home. And so we created this new transitional experience we had our time. She had her time. We stayed in touch. When I was her age, I was out till three o'clock in the morning, but I wasn't calling my mother. We didn't have cell phones, but I probably wouldn't have called her anyway. And so it's, it's good. There's respect and appropriate distance at this stage in our lives. So it's good. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a nailed it. It's that's good. a mom moment. <laughs> so those are great, great answers. And uh, thank you so much, Harriet. This is so much fun. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope everyone listening enjoyed this conversation and that you'll come back for more. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends. For more parenting info and advice, please check out the Ground Control Parenting blog at groundcontrolparenting.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Ground Control Parenting and on LinkedIn under Carol Sutton Lewis. The Ground Control Parenting with Carol Sutton Lewis podcast is a part of the Seneca Women Podcast Network in partnership with iHeartMedia. Until the next time, take care and thanks for listening.